Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 20. Luke 20, as we uh, continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke, this morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 20, verse 41, through chapter 21 and verse 4. Our title this morning is On Widows and Condemnation. And our key words for our worshipers in training are widow, scribe, and gift. Now, the single most important question that anyone in this life will ever have to deal with is the question about who Jesus is. And everyone has some response to that question, even if they say, I don't really know. Now, throughout the history of mankind since Jesus has come and live upon this earth, there have been many answers to that question, who is Jesus? Jesus, some say, was a great teacher. Some will say he was a God. Others, a moral guide, a spiritual leader, perhaps even a prophet. My father told me that when he was in college, someone suggested in a world religion class that Jesus was an alien. There's no shortage of opinions about Jesus and who he is and what he did. And that's not just today, and that's not over just the past 100 years. It was just as much the issue when Jesus walked upon the earth. People thought of Jesus as a healer, a prophet, a teacher, a wise man. But others thought of him as an imposter, a blasphemer, a revolutionary, a troublemaker. But you know, of all of the people in the world who have ever said anything about Jesus, the clearest on who he is and what he sought to accomplish was Jesus himself. Jesus has been clear all along about who he is. We've seen it numerous times throughout the Gospel of Luke in Jesus' own words and actions. And really, it starts all the way back in Luke chapter 4 when he first preached in his hometown of Nazareth. Remember Luke chapter 4. Jesus read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in the town where he grew up. And he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Those who claim that Jesus never said that he was God have a very severe deficiency when it comes to reading the scriptures. They don't get it at all. Jesus is not secretive about this at all. And from Luke 4 on, what have we read about? We've read about Jesus proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed by demons and disease. In word and in power, Jesus has proven over and over and over again, thousands of times over, that he is who the prophets said he would be. And yet, 
those who were supposed to be the experts of the law, the biblical scholars of the day, the ivory tower theologians, they completely missed it. As we've seen over the last few weeks, not only did they miss it, but they are now at the point where they are doing whatever they can to find a way to kill Jesus because he is a threat to all that they want to be. They're not interested in a spiritual kingdom identified by the fruit of the Spirit. No, they're interested in a physical kingdom in which they are in charge, in which they are in power, in which they are the ones who call all of the shots. No doubt they thought there would be a Messiah. But the Messiah to the Jews was just going to be a man. No more. A notable man, a powerful man, an influential man, a man who was all that a man could be, but still just a man. The Messiah was, in their minds, to come to reestablish the physical kingdom of God on the earth as the ruler of Israel and to be the dominant nation of all of the earth. And that's what all the people believe because that's what their leaders taught them. So when Jesus claimed to be God, he was immediately considered a blasphemer. And in all of their religious system, he had committed the most heinous of all crimes. Additionally, Jesus began very early on in his ministry to increasingly assault their theology, their power, their influence, their position, their false righteousness, and even the way they operated the temple. He cleanses the temple. He he confronts their rampant corruption. He exposes their hypocrisy. He escalates within them their desire to kill him. And they did. So what we've seen over the last several weeks is that Jesus' enemies have presented all of these questions that they've used in an attempt to trip him up. And he's answered all of them in a way that has shut their mouths. The scribes and then the Pharisees and then the Herodians. Last week we saw the Sadducees. And at the end of it all, we read last week in verse 40, Luke writes, they no longer dared to ask him any question. So what does Jesus do then? He turns the canon away from him onto all of them. And he begins with a question of his own. Look at verse 41. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Well, let's think about the context here of what's going on. It's Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life on earth. He's only a few short days away from drinking the cup of God's wrath. He has masterfully handled all who were seeking to kill him, and now he goes on the counteroffensive. 
he says to these illustrious men, I have a question now for you. And remember, only two days before, Jesus was being welcomed into Jerusalem by shouts of, Hosanna! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord! So Jesus points them to the 110th Psalm, and he says, what does it mean? How is it that David calls his coming son his Lord? In Psalm 110, the person David refers to as my Lord is clearly messianic. He's talking about the Messiah. The idiom that's used here for my Lord represents a way of speaking to or about a king. It's a kingly reference. He is David's Messiah king. He's David's Lord. And the, the entire psalm is a description of the king's mission. So he makes very clear that this is in reference to the Messiah. But consider this even more interestingly. The opening two words to Psalm 110 we have here uh, in our versions as the Lord. It's literally translated Yahweh. Yahweh. So we can read this as Yahweh says to my Messiah. Sit at my right hand. Yahweh is the name of God. The Messiah is clearly Christ. So Yahweh, God, says to his son, Jesus, sit at my right hand. And then later, Psalm 110 and verse 4, it tells us that the Messiah will replace the old covenant's temporal Levitical priesthood with the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. So the entire psalm is about the Messiah as the eternal priest king. And this is actually the most quoted of all of the psalms in the New Testament. It's used in Hebrews. It's also used in Acts and here in uh, Luke and the two other synoptic gospels. So what's the significance of Jesus' question? What's his point Well, obviously, the answer to Jesus' question is that David's son cannot be David's Lord unless the son himself is the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God to whom the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And you know, when you trust Jesus and when you follow the Lord, You're following him who has all of the authority and all of the power of the world. Even his enemies become a stool to his feet. And Jesus is saying, this is me. There's two stages to the Messiah's history that are very important here. First, by birth, Jesus becomes David's son, a son of David. Second, by his death, resurrection, ascension, and position at God's right hand, he reigns as David's Lord. So he's David's son, and he's David's Lord. Peter gave the same response at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus brings this up in this ongoing discussion about resurrection. Remember, we looked last week at resurrection, knowing full well that in less than a week, for Jesus, resurrection was going to become a reality. 
And after Jesus' death, it's all going to be very clear. Paul brings us out in the opening words in his letters, in his letter to the Romans in, in verses 3 and 4, he says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, By now, we've seen this many times, but it's worth remembering again that the problem with those who wanted to kill Jesus, what was it? Most notably, it was those who were supposed to be the teachers of the law. You see, they were looking at everything through a nationalistic political lens that reduced Jesus to nothing more than a man who would be a great political leader and a great national hero. They couldn't think beyond their rabbinical tradition. They couldn't think beyond what they'd been taught by all of their favorite teachers. They couldn't think beyond what they had assumed to be true based on their own interpretations. But if you think about that, it's a danger we all face, isn't it? Our tendency is to read the scriptures through our own lens instead of understanding the scriptures for what they are. All of us, whether we want to admit it or not, all of us have lenses of one kind or another, and we must seek the Holy Spirit's help in submitting to what is true in the Bible instead of what we hope it to say or have always assumed it to say just because we don't want to learn or we don't want to move beyond those traditions. You know, this is especially difficult for those who are teachers of the word. I will admit, it is difficult for pastors to listen to sermons or to sit in classes because the constant temptation is to think about how you would say it differently or how you would emphasize things in another way. Always thinking about those things instead of being instructed and filled by the word of God. And so we have Bible teacher lenses which cloud our vision. Some people have economic lenses. They want to view everything in the scriptures to be about money and prosperity and God making their life on earth more manageable and more comfortable. Some people have a a lens of a particular theological framework. They're completely unable to consider the scriptures in any other way or to study from any other perspective. Some people have lenses of postmodernism, which turns the most important question away from, what does the Bible mean? To ask, what does the Bible mean to me? You see, there are all kinds of lenses we want to put on before we read the scriptures. And we are no exception, but we've seen that with all of the Jewish leaders in the days of Jesus. So why did they want to kill him? Well, a lot of reasons, but most notably because Jesus wasn't who they wanted him to be. And brothers and sisters, we will most readily reject certain parts of Scripture when God is presenting to us a Jesus we don't want him to be. Friends, those of you who aren't Christians, you reject Jesus most ultimately because he is not who you would want him to be. He calls for the entirety of your life. 
He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just someone to get advice from. But he's a king and he is a Lord. And he calls us to submit all of our lives to him. But you see, Jesus will not become who we want him to become. Jesus is who he is as the second member of the Trinity, as the son of God, as the son of David, as the savior of the world, as the creator and sustainer of all things who reigns and rules as king forever and ever. And Jesus readily identifies this for all who can hear. He tells everyone standing around him essentially this. In Psalm 110, David is writing about me. I am the Messiah. I am David's Lord. I am the one who will make his enemies a footstool. Now Matthew records this very same thing in his interaction with all of these Jewish leaders. And it ends with these words in Matthew 22. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And so Jesus has very clearly identified the inability of the Jewish leadership to answer Jesus' questions. And so what does he do? Well, he launches into a scathing critique of the scribes. Let's read, starting in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So now Jesus turns to his disciples and everyone around can hear what he's saying and he tells them, beware of the scribes. Now the scribes, remember, were the public teachers of the people. They were the front men. They were the ones standing in front of the people in the synagogue, in the temple, the ones who, who everyone went to when they had questions. And Jesus warns against them and he says they're prideful, they're greedy, they're They are hypocrites. And he's removing here all remaining doubt concerning his attentions, his agenda, and his aims. Jesus has no desire whatsoever to ally himself with the current leadership of Israel. He has come to overthrow their authority and to replace it with his own. There is no way that both sides would survive this escalating conflict. There is simply no room in this world for both. And at at this point in the narrative, it only seems possible that Jesus will either assume this throne in power physically or he will face death. But you see, nobody but Jesus considers the third option, that he will die and that he will rise again in victory. Now, what does Jesus say about the scribes? Three things very specifically. First, he says that the scribes are prideful. They like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. One of the most troubling things to me as I travel to Nigeria each year 
is the way in which this very thing plays out right before your eyes in a very obvious manner. As you go into the churches, there is an elevated platform on which the most prominent men of the congregation will sit. And the pastor has a special chair that is more ornately designed than all of the others. He wears special clothing to be recognized. He will always stand to speak many words that have nothing to do with the word of God. They insist on everyone calling them pastor, and they love lengthy introductions that highlight all of their credentials. It's even worse if someone's an elder in a local village. When they're greeted by the people in the marketplaces, everyone takes a knee, and the young men lay down on the ground before them. I was walking with one of these men last year when that happened, and he turned to me and he said, does anyone do that for you? And then he said, I went to the United States once and nobody did that for me. It was was so ironic to me that he didn't realize what was really going on. In his mind, and maybe in the minds of a few hundred people, he might be pretty hot stuff. But to the rest of the world, and in the grand big picture, this man was nobody. He's just like the rest of us. And you see, that was the way of the scribes. They expected so much from everyone else. They were quite convinced in their minds that they were somebody. But Jesus makes it very clear that despite all of their parading around and sitting in the best seats and having VIP treatment everywhere they went and having their followers eating out of their hands day by day, they were really nobody except a group of men full of self-serving pride. Are you a leader of any kind? Do you teach or have a position of influence or authority? Are you someone's boss? Beware. Beware. The ever-pressing temptation is to think you're greater than you are and to insist that others recognize it. There is only one God, and you are not him. Secondly, Jesus says that the scribes are greedy. He says they devour widows' houses. Now, the scribes stole from widows in numerous ways. They cheated them out of their inheritance, insulting, uh, uh, insulting them by doing so. They insisted that they give extra to the temple after their husbands died. They often lived off the hospitality of lonely women. They mismanaged the property of widows when they gave themselves in in service to the temple. Sometimes the widows would give themselves to serve the temple in exchange their property would be cared for. And they mismanaged that. They accepted money from widows with the offer of a special prayer for them. If you give me extra money, I will pray a special prayer for you. But this should come as no surprise to us because there are charlatans just like this all throughout the world today, aren't there? The false teacher Creflo Dollar said in a sermon broadcast on TBN in 1999, he said, you need to hear about money because you ain't going to have no love and joy and peace until you get some money. 
he has a personal net worth of $27 million. Joel Osteen, another false teacher with a personal net worth of $40 million, once said, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. And how do these men get the money they have? From the easily deceived people who send it to them by the millions as they watch at home and they hear promises of a better life, a fuller checking account, and ease and comfort. And there's no shortage of these wolves in the world today, and they've taken a page right out of the book of the scribes. They found naive people around the world who will willingly loosen their purse strings even when they have nothing. And you know, you know who they get the most money from? The elderly, the widows. I've heard story after story after story of people who didn't have enough money to buy food and yet were convinced by some false teacher that they needed to give whatever they had so some so-called ministry could increase in their income to grow their bank account to receive back a hundredfold blessing. This is robbery of the most vile kind. It doesn't include guns or purse snatching. That's right out in the open. No, this is a manipulation in the name of Jesus to make people richer through scams and lies. It's a disgraceful, damning practice. And Jesus exposes the scribes for this very thing. Brothers and sisters, it's this. It's, it's not in Islam. It's not Hinduism. It's the false preaching of prosperity that is most devastating to the work of the church around the world today. Yes, God's word will always be effective. Yes, God's church will not be defeated. Yes, the gospel will always have power and will work to change the hearts of men. But we are severely hindered by this evil nonsense and it spreads throughout the world at an alarming rate. Entire continents are being ravaged by this. Beware the spirit of the scribes. It is alive and well today. Thirdly, Jesus says the scribes are hypocrites. Philip Ryken comments, when pride is paired with greed, prayers are ostentatious. It's what Jesus says in verse 47. The scribes make long prayers. Now, these men were not godly. They're not concerned in their prayers with communing with God or bringing others into communion with God. They were putting it all on so others could look at them and assume that there was a form of godliness within. They liked to hear themselves pray, and they wanted others to hear them pray. It was pride. It was greed. It was hypocrisy because they said all of these things about God and to God but they believe none of it. And in saying all these things, Jesus concludes with these very sobering words. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Isn't that frightful? This is why James writes in James chapter 3, not many of you should become teachers. 
for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. No man should take lightly what he is doing when he takes up the call to preach or teach the word of God. This is why preparation and training are important. This is why it is vital that a church takes seriously the responsibility it has to help a man discern God's calling in his life. This is why we are not simply to listen to everyone who claims to be preaching the Bible. We must weigh everything that is preached against the word of God to see if it's found in balance. There are many men in churches today who are far more like scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees than they are like Christ. Beware of those who will, in the end, receive the greater condemnation. In Matthew 7, Jesus gives us warning. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. There will be many, many people on the day of judgment who stand before the Lord and say, we did so many wonderful things in your name. We worked so many works. We did so many deeds. We raised so much money. And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Their trees are fruitless and they're thrown into the fire. We have to move on. And as we do, I want you to consider whether or not you've heard the next four verses of chapter 21 within the context in which they're given. Now, most of us have probably heard the story, but have we thought about it in the big picture of what's going on in this current interaction with Jesus and all of his detractors during the final days of his life? The question in the contrast that Luke is drawing out, as we think about our hearts compared to the scribes, are we really Christ's people through and through? As a pastor, as Christians, as, as those who day by day are being called to be conformed to the image of Christ, are we his? And are we living to be conformed more and more into him? Or are we for ourselves and our own pursuits and our own desires? That's what sets up verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. Let's read those verses. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Luke is very deliberate in how he organizes his writing. He's drawing a very clear contrast here between those who devour widows, which we just read about, and a widow who puts in all that she has in the temple treasury. He's condemning one group, those who are self-righteous devourers, And he commends the other, the humble, 
and the meek. We've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, he has a few very special interests. He talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, the poor. He deals a lot with women and widows. And as a doctor, Luke also draws a lot of attention to the sick and to the healing work of Jesus. But here, Luke is highlighting our Savior's special care and heart for widows as he expresses condemnation of those who misuse them and abuse them for their own ends. Jesus loves to bless those who are lowly, those who are weak and poor. And Jesus looks on this woman, and his heart goes out to her. She's surrounded by people of false piety who would just use her. And yet, in comparison for as little as she has, she's full of love for God. And it was present in two, in two very distinct sounds that Jesus heard. Clink, clink. As her coins fell into the treasury. She doesn't create a scene. She doesn't say a word. She just gives. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, This woman has given more than all of the rest combined together. She's given out of her poverty, and you can sense it's all out of a love for God. You see, here's the principle being expressed here by Jesus. It's not how much you give, but rather what's in your heart when you give. However, what's in our hearts comes to expression in how we give and how we think about our giving. There's something about having that sticks in our hearts, and it's difficult to move away from it. So this is a challenge for us to think about our own hearts. Are we free from addiction, addiction to having? Money does funny things to our hearts. People don't like talking about it. Uh, We like to have it. We like to spend it. But we never want to be challenged about the things we do with it. And here's something about our giving that is very important, and I hope all of us will remember this. Faithful giving does not stop after the money is counted on Sunday morning and the checks are deposited in the bank. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible tells us God's eye is on the sparrow. Therefore, even more than that, God's eye is on where the money we give goes and what it does. Those who downplay the importance of giving to the church say things like, why can't we just give it all to the poor? Or why shouldn't we just give of our own, to our own support to individual missionaries? And the answer is that we certainly can do those things. However, God has appointed a means for these things to happen, and it's through his local church. And we may look at what we give and then say, well, it's little, it's nothing, it's, it's of no consequence. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a much bigger view of God than that. There are big, humongous churches with multi-million dollar budgets who have little or no lasting impact whatsoever. But there are small churches of less than 100 people that can do amazing, wonderful things through their sacrifice and through their gifts. More wonderful than all the gifts of 10,000 member churches combined. How so? Well, in heaven, I think we will learn that we gave $10 here or $100 there, and it was multiplied in ways that never should have worked according to earthly accounting standards. 
But you see, the amount is not what's important to the Lord. However, it's quite clear to him so often that the amount is very important to us. We even think about it in our planning, and our, our budgeting. This is for me, that is for God. But I don't think we understand it rightly. It all belongs to God. Do we really understand that all that we have and all that we give really belongs to God? And so the question to ask is not what's for me and what's for God, but rather to look at it all and say, what does he want me to do with it? What if, and I I know this isn't the case for any of us, but what if all we could contribute every year was $1? Or what if when we give for missions and benevolence, all we're ever to provide is $1? Do we think, oh, this is useless. It's useless. If so, we think far too little of God. We think far too little of what God can do because he uses his accounting methods, not ours. He richly blesses the gifts that come with a heart full of joy through giving that comes in joy. Not the amount. You can give $1,000 begrudgingly and see no kingdom impact whatsoever and yet give a dollar that's given with a full, cheerful heart And that's fixed on seeing God receive all of the glory and it will do amazing things. I know that we are not this woman. We may all have means, but we may be provided for and there there are all kinds of ways we can see ourselves different from her. And for a widow, there's something about her life that she can look at and leave thinking that her life is over, that her life is a struggle, that she can't be all that she once was. But this is about faithfulness. And this passage is telling us Jesus doesn't ignore this woman. He doesn't ignore this widow. He doesn't ignore any widows. But he pays very careful, loving attention to them. And everything they give to him in love, he has multiplied beyond all imagination. Isn't it like the Lord to do that kind of thing? Isn't that why we love him so much? He has such love and such care and such devotion. He's full of blessings and he likes to pour them out on his people. He's a wonderful savior. And for those of you who are widows and widowers, for those who are single, the Lord Jesus has a special love for you. And we want to have a special love for you too. Our Lord has shown us over and over and over again that he does great things with small things. Big things with small people. Significant things with insignificance. That has been the story of Luke. And you may, in your mind and in the world's eyes, be a nobody. But in Christ, all the nothings from nobodies are used for his glory in ways that we can never imagine possible. May God help us to examine our hearts, to reveal to us any pride, any greed, any hypocrisy. Will he keep us humble, meek, sacrificial, to the praise of his glorious grace. That is our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that very thing. We pray, God, that you would keep all of us from pride, 
from greed, from hypocrisy. That you would make us all the more to be a people who are humble and meek and sacrificial. And that all that we do in this life, we would do to the praise of your glorious grace. And so we pray this morning, Father, that you remind us of the word that we've received today. That we not be like the scribes and that we avoid those who are and we warn against them. And that your people be rightly cared for by the church, by your people. I pray especially this morning, Lord, for those who will go away from here alone today, who go back to an empty house by themselves and may think of themselves as less important to the body of Christ, as less important and valuable to their community, to their brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, God, that through the word we've heard this morning and through the evidence of Jesus' care for this widow, that would remind all of us that Jesus loves his people. He loves us with a special love and that we are never outside of his love and that those who may not be gathering day by day with all of their family are still loved and cared for by Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Father, bless your people to know that whatever our circumstances are, that we can be content because Christ is our all in all. So Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that you would bless us to understand in the hearing of your word what you call us to as your people. And may it all be put to work for your great renown to all the nations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.